This is Rob Long with Martini Shot for The Ankler. I don't know the exact demographics of this podcast, but unfortunately, I think I need to say this before I get going for some of the younger listeners. Years ago, there was a sitcom called Webster about a tiny and adorable boy, the eponymous Webster, played by the young black actor Emmanuel Lewis, who was adopted by an older, rich, white couple. And yes, this is problematic on a lot of levels, and I may be getting the details slightly wrong, but that was the basic gist. It was a pretty simple formula. Webster got himself into mischief each week, and he and his adopted parents all learned important lessons as a family. You know, that sort of thing. And yes, it's just inconceivable that a show like that would be produced today. But honestly, for what it was back then, it wasn't that bad, as I recall. But it was built on a bedrock of old-timey TV network cynicism, that if you make something blandly inoffensive enough, people will just forget that it's even on. They'll never seek it out, of course, but they won't also be exercised enough to switch it off. It will just be, and will continue to be, until some Network president suddenly looks at the gigantic magnetic display board in his office, which shows the programming grid, and says, Is that still on? I thought I canceled that. Now, this, of course, was in the olden times, when there were three and a half TV networks, and they all maneuvered and jimmied their schedules around to avoid head-to-head competitions as much as possible. So if you had a show on the air, you could sort of settle in. The key wasn't to attract viewers. It was to keep from driving them off, which is a very different business strategy. Once, though, a newly minted network executive was assigned to supervise the series Webster, and most TV shows have someone like that, and it's a pretty thankless job, frankly. Often it's a low-level and still enthusiastic young person, and the job description is futile and grim. The job of supervising executive is to corral and cajole the creative team, made up entirely of writers who it's hard to fire and who can think of nothing more fun than making cruel sport out of the young executive's notes and try to, in general, keep the series creatively aligned with what the network, who is the buyer after all, wants. So, after a typical lackluster and laugh-less script reading, the freshly installed executive called the writers over for a conference. She had, she signaled, some notes on the script that she'd like addressed. There were weak spots she'd like improved. There were holes in the story she'd like filled in. I think the show would be a lot better, she began. Let me stop you right there the head writer and executive producer interrupted, because we think it works. But the young exec would not be deterred. I'm just trying to make a good Webster, she said bravely. Let me stop you right there, the head writer and executive producer interrupted again. There are no good Websters, he said. There are no bad Websters. There are just Websters which was true back then and was frankly smart business back then. But now the goal isn't to keep the viewers you've got because the viewers you've got, you don't really got anymore. They're not drifting through the primetime lineup or flipping around on the sofa. They're making an intentional choice to activate a streaming service and they search then for a specific title, much more efficient, which when it comes to show business and audience management is emphatically not the goal. Think of it this way. A friend of mine is busily working on the driverless car, and he likes to point out that the most important piece of data in the entire driverless car effort, more important actually than any piece of technology or machine guidance or mechanical breakthrough, the most important piece of transforming data is this. In order for a driverless car to work, it needs to know where you're going. Because only you know where you're going, which is why traffic patterns are so complicated. The cars around you don't know that you're going to turn left up ahead, but if they did, they could anticipate that and change lanes or slow down or speed up or whatever. The key to all of it is to get you to do something you don't really ever do, which is to announce your destination ahead of time to the giant 
brain of the internet, which is something people already do if they use Waze or Google Maps or something. And my friend says that this is more important and will have a greater effect on traffic patterns and driving than a multitude of driverless cars. Human behavior, after all, is a lot more complex and unfathomable than machine behavior, which is why a lot of us get stressed out in traffic. It's not how many cars there are, it's the mysterious and unpredictable behavior of the unknown drivers around us. If we knew where they were going, if they knew where we were going, things would, of course, be a lot smoother. The entertainment business, of course, works on a similar principle. The entire business right now is built on harnessing the natural human impulse to find something to watch or to flip around, and the contrary natural human impulse to lie sideways on the couch, a thin thread of drool, arcing out to the sofa cushion, and just, you know, watch whatever. The best business models play nimbly with both of these impulses. Years ago, NBC had terrific success with its must-see TV model, Thursday nights with funny and smart shows that what they called destination viewing, but really only two of the comedies were destinations, Friends and Seinfeld, and often two of them were utterly forgettable. So forgettable that I've forgotten what the others were. And they changed them a lot. But you really don't need four hits to have a powerhouse lineup. Half of them could be mediocre. I mean, why spend money that you don't have to? The thinking was this. If you have four strong shows, it's smarter to spread them out over a few days. For instance, once you know that people are planning to tune into the show, say, Friends, at 8 p.m., you can just put something second rate at 8.30. Maybe even one of those just Websters, confident that the bedrock human tendency to once on the couch, stay on the couch, will carry you to at least 9 p.m. when the viewer needs a little bit more incentive to stay put. As you can get them to stay put until 11, you've got a good shot at keeping them through the local news and into whoever is doing the late night show. That's how television used to work, but as anyone who watches streaming TV will tell you, it's different now. I mean, like everybody, I've been up until 3 a.m. watching some terrific and compulsive show, and most of the services helpfully start the next episode before I could lift my head up to check the time. It knew where I was going at the beginning of the night to watch one and only one episode of whatever show we're talking about, and it helpfully directed me to watching all of the first and second season of a show and, of course, ruining my day the next morning. But what it didn't do, what no one has really figured out yet, despite the you-may-also-likes and the suggested-for-you algorithms, is get me to watch something else, something new, something I didn't know I wanted to watch. Without audience flow, TV becomes very hard and very expensive. It requires ad spends and promotional campaigns, Eliminating randomness, whether it's car traffic or audience traffic, is the key to making the street safer, but it's also making the entertainment business efficient, which again, when it comes to show business, is not the goal. The old model of broadcast television had a little cushion built in. The 8.30 show didn't have to be that good, didn't have to be a destination, didn't have to be an intentional choice made by the viewer, which of course made it cheaper. But if watching television now is like driving, you have to know where you're going you have to have a clear destination, then everything is going to cost a lot more money, and a lot of shows are just going to disappear into nothingness. So my thinking is this. To be a competitive and flexible media behemoth, you really need three legs to the stool. You need to have a broad-based platform, like a broadcasting network, to promote your content and get a wide sample cheaply. Then you need an operation for streaming or premium cable, something that requires a subscription. And finally, an operation like a studio or a sports and live event business to get eyeballs to your broad platform to start funneling them to the pay streams, which is sort of the opposite of what's happening right now in the entertainment business, where the old, tired, unfashionable broadcast networks with their CSIs and their Websters are so out of fashion that NBC recently announced it was thinking about eliminating an entire hour of primetime programming. At 10 p.m., they're thinking, 
maybe they should just hand over the next hour to whatever the local station wants to schedule. And that, to me, seems foolish because that's ignoring the chief feature of broadcast TV, which is to get a lot of viewers to watch, I don't know, Webster, and maybe to discover some other show to fall in love with, and maybe to follow that show to some same company streaming service once they're hooked, or maybe to showcase some of the shows that now sit unwatched, undiscovered on the servers. So I have a bad habit of going someplace, usually far away in a different country, and buying something to wear, something local and indigenous, and I think, you know, this is me now. I will wear this sarong when I get back home. I will wear this crazy straw hat or these wooden slippers. This is me now. And sometimes we get seduced by newness and end up looking ridiculous. Sometimes we pick the wrong thing to get obsessed by and forget that where we live, wooden slippers are uncomfortable and noisy. Maybe that's just human nature. We often forget who we really are. And I don't mean in the sense that we forget our limitations. I mean, we forget who we really are. We are people who do not wear sarongs. When we, okay, when I thumb through alumni magazines or catch up with contemporaries, it's awfully hard not to think, you know, maybe I should have done that. Maybe I should have gone to law school. Maybe I should have moved to San Francisco and become a venture capitalist. Maybe I should have done what that person did or is doing. Now, that kind of misplaced competitiveness can lead to a lot of personal unhappiness, but it can also, when it's present in the entertainment business, can lead to a lot of odd and irrational behavior. I mean, there really are only two ways to make money in the entertainment business. Either I charge you for a thing, for a ticket to a movie, for a subscription to a service, or I give something away for free and then charge advertisers to interrupt that thing every now and then. Either I'm selling tickets or I'm selling eyeballs. And we have a tendency in this business to think that those two ways of making money are related. They're cousins, which they were, but they're not now. Right now, the energy and the shine is on subscription services, and that makes sense because they're new, and people here like to think that new is better and new is easier, and new is going to make making money more automatic and stress-free. You know, you get a credit card number, charge people by the month, they'll forget about it, won't think about it again, unless somebody invents a way to cancel these services easily and quickly. Uber, but for canceling Hulu. I mean, it's probably going to be a pretty good business, and what it takes is a relentless focus on getting small slices of the audience to sign up, slices that then add up to a bigger part of the pie. Broadcast networks, on the other hand, are in the audience business, not the subscription business. Broadcast networks aren't cool or new, and their product is big pools of viewers that sell big to advertisers, companies that want to, you know, sell cars and soft drinks and insurance. These are two entirely different businesses, but for some reason, there's a sense in the broadcast business that they should be competing with subscription services. They should be developing and scheduling targeted niche shows, shows aimed at particular audiences, shows narrow-casted at specific groups, shows, in other words, designed to attract subscribers. When broadcasters, in other words, broadcast, when they go for a big audience, when they try to be broadly appealing, when they remember what business they're really in, which is crowd-pleasing entertainment, they can still do a terrific business. And they can be a major part of a successful strategy for entertainment companies, but they have to remember who they really are. Instead, most of the time, they're standing on the corner in a sarong and wooden slippers and wondering why everyone is looking away in embarrassment. And that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to quit the business. For The Ankler, this is Rob Long with Martini Shot.